I just kind of resolved a long time ago that I'm just going to be stubborn. I'm just going to keep on showing up until someone tells me to go home and no one has told me to go home yet. So I think I'm doing okay. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to date of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Rob Hart is the author of six novels, the short story collection Take Out, Scott Free with James Patterson and A Star Wars Story. His last book, The Warehouse, sold in 22 countries and was optioned for film by Ron Howard. His next novel, The Paradox Hotel, is due February 22nd. So please welcome Rob to the show. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your journey with everyone. We're going to talk about your publishing journey today, and we're going to start by going all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long from there did it take before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? So so I'm 39 now, and I think I decided when I was like 18 that I wanted to write novels. Uh, I was in college. I was an art major. It was not going well. Uh, I nearly failed out because it just it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. And I, I was like, well, novels would be really cool. I love writing, but I don't know that I can make money with a creative writing degree. So I ended up getting a journalism degree instead. Which and there were some real great benefits there for my writing career in terms of you know being able to like work fast and research and meet deadlines and stuff, but you know I started writing a novel and it was just the absolute worst piece of garbage on the planet. <laughs> there, there's a copy down in my filing cabinet that's the only copy of it that exists anymore, and uh, I will be buried with it. And no one will ever see it again. <laughs> my first novel came out in. 2015 so i guess i was like 32 or something or was i 35 i don't know i i was i was i was in my 30s when uh, when my first novel came out so it, it certainly it certainly was a long road yeah so can you tell me a little bit more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author and also like what did you think that that was going to look like for you and how is that compared to how it is now you know, I guess the moment is, you know, and I've always loved books. I've always loved reading, you know, and there were a lot of books that I can point to uh, as I was growing up that were very formative for me. Uh, but I remember reading Survivor by Chuck Palahniuk uh, and being like, man, like, I didn't know books can do this. <laughs> and just being like, I want to do stuff like this. If, if there was a spark moment, I would probably say it was that. I mean, as for how I expected it to look like, I don't know. I mean, I was a dumb 18 year old. Like, I didn't know anything about anything. So I just... I just kind of figured, like, I'm just going to pursue this and see what happens. And, you know, my experience really kind of ran the gamut because my first five books came out with a uh, with a small press, you know, which they, they came out with Polis. It was like an amateur private eye series. It's a lot of hustle. It wasn't a lot of money. It, it was very like, you know, doing a lot of my own work, a lot of my own touring. And then... Then the warehouse deal hit, which was just banana pants. And that was like, you know, all these foreign sales and a movie option and, you know, enough money to let me quit my day job and be a full-time writer, you know, and, and I never even really, I never even really thought I would make it to that level. I always kind of figured like, if I was lucky, maybe I'd be like a mid-list author or something who could like write novels in his spare time and then probably like do other jobs. And it was actually kind of weird when I finally made the transition over to full-time writing. So taking a step back, once you decided that you wanted to pursue publication, how did you learn more about the publishing industry, how it works, how to query, all those different skills? I kind of worked my way into a really supportive community. 
Chuck Polinick, who, who I eventually became friendly with, uh, as well as I became friendly with the people who ran his website. They had a really cool sort of setup with like a writing workshop and they would bring in authors to do like, you know, workshops. And so I participated in some of those and kind of started feeling at my oats a little bit on that and also started writing for them. So I was interviewing authors and, and sort of like plugging into, you know, advice and stuff from them. And I'm also, again, like, because I'm a former journalist, like research is kind of my bag. So once I kind of committed to, to this, it was, it was easy enough for me to be like, okay, like I can spend days and days and days on the internet learning how to do this stuff, <laughs> which I think like a lot of the answers you need are really out there. You know, I'm always like, a little taken aback when someone asks me like a like a 101 style question because i'm like and, and i don't mean this to like in a disrespectful way but it's like that answer is easy to find like if you're serious about this you should have found that by now but uh, it's just yeah it was a lot of research a lot of reading and and a lot of trial and error I, i'm sort of like i guess a weird case because i i've had two agents neither of whom i got by querying so and we're going to talk about that in just a minute so then what happened in between deciding you wanted to write your first book to getting your first book contract? How did that process go? Chuck's website eventually developed into a website called Lit Reactor because all the, the writing workshops and the classes and the author interviews and the content were sort of growing beyond sort of the container of just his personal website. So the guy who ran his personal website split it off into Lit Reactor and asked me to come along to write for them to help with the class program, uh, which I now run. We were doing a uh, Wordstock. It was uh, a festival in Portland. Uh, like we would, we would go get a table for the website just to kind of like promote ourselves and hang out at the convention for the weekend. Like we did that at AWP a few times too. And I met uh, this woman who was an agent. She was young. She was part of the Lit Reactor crew, and we got to talking. And I told her, you know, hey, I'm working on a novel, and she's like, cool. Like, you know, send me some of your stuff. So I sent her a short story I wrote that was published in Helix Literary Magazine. She really dug it. And she was like, you know, hey, like when you're done with your book, send it to me. And I, that's when I was working on my first actual published novel in New York. And I finished it. I sent it over and she dug it and she, we we hooked up. <laughs> that was a little bit messy too, because it initially got picked up by a small press called Exhibit A that was an imprint of Angry Robot and signed the contract they gave me a two book deal. You know, it was a decent amount of money for a first novel. Like not like it was, it was four figures, but it was still like for a first novel, it was like, Hey, okay. Okay. And then uh, like two months later, they decided to shut down the imprint. Mm -hmm. So I kind of went from like a two book deal to a no book deal, but you know, like I, so, so, so I had like two weeks of, you know, feeling sad for myself. And then we got back on the horse and uh, we ended up with Polis books, which Jason Pinter was just starting at the time and was sort of like building out. And we had had a relationship because at that point I was working in publishing. I was running a, a small press called mysteriouspress.com, which mostly took like old crime and mystery books and turn them into ebooks. And yeah, he went for the, he ended up going for the full series. We ended up doing five books with him and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a really good experience. And, and I'm actually, I really am happy that I had that experience because I think starting with a small press and moving up to a larger press was really good because it gave me the opportunity to sort of find my voice, find my process, learn how to work with an editor, learn how to manage my expectations and I feel like I improved on myself in every subsequent book. Mm -hmm. I, I feel I feel very thankful to have had that experience because the warehouse thing was just, you know, completely nuts. Yeah. 
I had no idea that's how lit reactor started. Yeah, it's you know, it's it, it was it was kind of interesting because like, and that's the thing, like Chuck is is a really really generous dude. Like he's taught for us, and he always teaches like for free because he wants to like you know connect with writers and, and, and encourage them. And he's very big about building writing communities and and an instruction and tutelage. So it was nice to kind of like have that container to start building this, and then to be able to kind of like branch it off into something that became bigger. Yeah. I know you said that it was embarrassing, but it's time. Can you read your uh, successful query letter for us? Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) You're really going to make me do this. Okay. In my email to you, I was like, it feels almost cringy to look at now. (laughs) Um, All right. Ashley McKenna doesn't tolerate men who hit women. So when he wakes up from a vicious bender to the news that the woman he loves has been raped and killed, he'll tear apart New York City to avenge her death. Armed with a weaponized umbrella, he hunts Rachel's killer, only to find himself drawn into a turf war headed up by his sometimes employer, Jenny Tonic, the queen of the Lower East Side. As he tries to avoid the ire of a drug dealer and a dirty cop, he stumbles into a noir alternate reality game where Chell had been employed. Deprived of sleep and struggling to separate fact from fiction, Ash is forced to face the memories of his failed relationship with Chell, his unresolved anger over his father's murder, and the consequences of his own violent tendencies. Soon, his hunt for revenge turns into a quest for survival, as even the city he loves begins to betray him. New York just completed 85,000 words. And then bio and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and and if it's okay, I just want to say something real quick. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I love New York. I love my first novel. I love everything I've written. But there is a part of me that kind of looks back and has a, a certain degree of regret that I, I opened my first novel with the death of a woman as a motivator for the male protagonist. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like that's a trope that uh, in the last couple of years I've come to recognize as, as somewhat problematic. Mm-hmm. And I, I can defend myself and say that, you know, Chell is a fairly substantial character in the book in the sense that she appears a lot via flashback and she's sort of like the impetus for, for his growth. But, you know, there's a part of me that looks back at that with a little bit of sadness because I feel like I played into something that I maybe could have done differently. Yeah, I think anyone who's been writing for an amount of time has something that they look back on and they're like, oh, that was maybe... <laughs> not what I should have done at the time. Yeah. So you talked about it a little bit already, but how has your experience been since sending that first contract? Was there anything that surprised you about the publishing process? You know, not to a huge degree, only in the sense that, again, because I'd been working for Mysterious Press at that point, I already had like a, a sort of low-key understanding of how a lot of the stuff worked. I was just suddenly on the other side and it was, you know, it it went pretty well in the sense that like, you know, my agent negotiated me like a pretty good deal for a small press. And looking back, I wish I like we kept film and TV. I wish we had kept foreign. We didn't. But that was also kind of like selling foreign rights for a small press book is really tough anyway. Mm -hmm. But overall, it was a it was a pretty smooth process. There's uh, again, and sort of like, you know, managing expectations. It's like, you know, with my first book, it was sort of learning that like, just because you put a book out doesn't mean it's going to like be on every front table of every bookstore. And it doesn't mean it's going to be like a bestseller and like get a movie deal and all this crazy stuff. You kind of have to develop a sense of reality, you know, because it's, it's very easy to get lost in this idea of like, yeah, my book's going to conquer the world. And then you realize like, wow, it's a really crowded market. And also, you know, you're with a small press that, you know, Polis very much to its credit punches above its weight class because uh, Jason worked in I, I think he was at Random House like he's worked in the the big publishing you know arena so he knows a lot of stuff that 
other people who run small presses might not necessarily know or have access to. But at the same time, still a small press book. You know, you're not getting reviewed in the New York Times. You're not getting on, you know, Good Morning America unless you got some really good connections. Yeah. It's funny you say not every book gets these things. And then you listed several things at the warehouse got right yeah yeah you know but and and that was book number six or seven or something i guess i don't know but yeah that's the thing is it kind of it kind of takes time and that's why it was very nice and surprising when those things happened yeah we're not really going to talk about the warehouse because we're going to talk about your other book later but i just wanted to say right now that i love the warehouse if you haven't read it yet like definitely check it out the audiobook is amazing too well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm really excited. Um, so uh, it was Emily Wu Zeller who did the narration for the audiobook, and um, I know I love her. Yeah, and so I got her back for uh, for the new one, Paradox Hotel, oh, and that's yay. like, yeah, I'm so glad. And and because like they, it was funny too, because like the guy who the the, the quote unquote director for the audiobook, like he had this other woman in mind, and she was great. You know, all her samples were fantastic, but it turned out she was built busy. So I was like, please get me Emily back. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm so glad that she's there. Yeah, Emily's great. And the guy who did the smaller part, he was, I can't remember the character's name now, the the kind of owner. The oh, yeah, Gibson. Gibson. The guy who did Gibson's part was just genius, too. The way he read it was really good. Yeah, yeah, they, they really nailed it. It is time for author DNA. It's uh, my sort of quick round. Are you a pantser or a plotter? Lunatic plotter. <laughs> Lunatic. Are you an overwriter or an underwriter? Underwriter, very much so. Do you tend to write better in the morning or at nighttime? I have a daughter who is now seven. Uh, I write when I can. (laughs) It's a lot of parents' answers. (laughs) Yeah. When you start with a new project, do you typically start with character or plot or concept or something else first? Generally, I have like kind of an idea of what I want it to be. And then I find the characters uh, to kind of hang it on. Mm. You know, like Paradox Hotel was literally just a document that said time travel hotel for like three months. And then (laughs) then one day I just kind of got a vision of the main character and I'm like, oh, there she is. Nice. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Probably more coffee than is reasonable. (laughs) We're writers. It's normal. Yeah. When you're drafting, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? I like to listen to music, but it's usually like something like low-key, like electronic or, or uh, classical, like something without words. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Get it down. What tools or software do you use to draft? Just Microsoft Word. I, I, I start a lot of my stuff in Google Docs, um, just as sort of like a repository for notes and information. And then it's all Word. I mean, like I've, I've looked at Scrivener and like it made my brain short circuit. I was like, there's just too much here for me to deal with. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Probably revising, you know, because it's like the drafting is like this constant mess of like, this is garbage and I hate it. But in, at least in the revising, I know it's still garbage and I hate it, but I know at least I can <laughs> fix it. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? Sequential order. And final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? You know, I I, I value my alone time, but I do like people and I do like talking to people. And I I really miss conventions and and comic cons and and all all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We already did your query. Now we're going to get into that second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized or did you overcome them or how did they shake out? You know, in terms of worries, I guess, and this is probably like a very common thing, it's just like struggling with imposter syndrome mm-hmm. of, you know, 
I, I, I can be very hard on myself. I have high standards for myself. And so there's a lot of times that I would look at something and say, man, I could have done better or like, you know, why, why is anyone even going to like this? And I just kind of resolved a long time ago that I'm just going to be stubborn. I'm just going to keep on showing up until someone tells me to go home and no one has told me to go home yet. So I think I'm doing okay. I always tend to focus a little bit too, too much on what I didn't get over what I did get, mm. you know, like sometimes like if, if I didn't get the good review from someone, if I didn't get the review in the certain journal that I was waiting for, if I didn't get like the, the answer back on a project, I, I, I tend to like get very hard on myself. And it was like, you should have worked harder. You should have done better. But, you know, overall, I feel like I've hit a fairly even groove on, on dealing with publishing, which is like, you know, generally nonsensical and, and takes very long and is very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. And now the third cue, do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that is kind of different or interesting or unique? You know, the one thing that I that I really love talking to people about, uh, and, and, and look, I, I believe very strongly that writing advice all needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I know I've heard so many times people say that like, oh, if you want to be a professional writer, you have to write every day. And it's like, you know what? I don't write every day. I'm doing fine. And I think that's really da dangerous, actually, because I've had people actually say to me like, oh, you know, I heard this and I can't write every day because I got a job because I got a family. So I guess I can't be a professional writer. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Like, just get your work done. That's all that matters. And so, you know, it, it's not good to treat writing advice as totems. You have to kind of like decide whether or not it works for you in your process. Um, but the one thing that I do throw out to people a lot, and and they've been very responsive to, is I always do one edit of my novel backwards, where I start with the last chapter and then work my way through to the front. And you know, it's for a couple of reasons. It it helps me to see things out of order uh, because I think sometimes that can help you kind of solve plot issues or notice things that are broken that you have to fix. And I, I don't know if other writers experience this, but sometimes but by the time I get to the end of an edit, I'm just like, God, I just want this thing to be done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I think what, what this does is it forces you to put that fresh starting energy into the end mm. and like really kind of focus on it. And that way you can kind of like, you, you can kind of beef things up and find where you, you kind of drop the ball a little bit. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the backwards edit. That sounds like a good idea. I'm going to try that one, one day. When you were in the lowest parts of your writing journey, what kept you going and why did you stick to it? I guess part of it is going back to like the stubborn thing. Like I'm just immensely stubborn, you know, which I think is a pretty valuable quality to have in this. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've always, I, I've always kind of just assumed that this is what I was going to do. So I was like, I'm just going to keep on trying and keep on trying. Cause you know, again, going back to when I said before that, like I got this publishing deal and then I ended up losing it. I mean, that's like, I don't know if you can get a bigger blow as an author, you know, to like sign a contract and it's this big thing. You tell all your friends and, you know, like it's this, and it's so exciting. And all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, no, this is not a thing anymore. You know, I don't know that I ever actively considered quitting at that point, but I definitely kind of needed a little bit of time to process. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's, and that's just part of my personality. It's like, you know, just kind of like dust off and say, okay, what, what's the next right action? Do you feel like you made any mistakes that you might like to warn listeners about? So hopefully they don't make the same ones. Oh, okay. That's a good question. Okay. Yeah. Never give up your foreign rights. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's a good one. Um, don't sign shopping agreements. I, I think shop is, so a shopping agreement is like when someone wants to option your work for film or TV, but they're not going to pay you. 
but they still get an exclusive window to work with your stuff. And that kind of sucks because A, you're not getting paid. Uh, B, they have no skin in the game because they didn't put out any money for it. So they're not going to treat it very seriously. They're just going to like kind of throw a line out, see if anyone bites. And if they don't, they're going to sit on it for 18 months. And, you know, if so- if something better comes along, you can't do anything with it. You know, be careful who you listen to, be careful who you work with, you know, because publishing can be... There, there are a lot of people who really claim to know what they're talking about, and they don't. Um, there are a lot of agents out there who are not great, you know. There, and there are some wonderful, marvelous agents, but you know, I think you have to be really discerning with that because, like, I've heard horror stories from friends who've like signed with agents who have not treated them or their work correctly. The best thing you can do, really, is just like ask around, you know, and and this is the importance of like building a sense of community and building relationships with other writers, because there are still times where I'll like, you know, I just recently got asked to, to do an event, to do a library's event. And I saw that my buddy did it. And so I reached out to him. I'm like, Hey, like, what's the tea here? Like, was it a good event? Like, did they treat you right? And I think that's immensely, immensely valuable to be able to go to other authors and say, hey, like, what is your experience? I quite frequently now, you know, when my when my agent is looking to, to, to take on a new client and wants to talk to some of his clients, um, he'll reach out to me and be like, hey, can you talk about this person? Uh, can, can, can you talk to this person about me? And I'm always happy to do it. I think that's a really valuable thing. Any agent who doesn't want you to talk to their clients, that's probably a bit of a red flag. But yeah, I think the best thing you could do is just like ask questions and be aware and do your research and make sure you've got like a supportive community of people around you. Yeah, definitely. I remember I was invited to speak at a writing conference, essentially. And I looked and they weren't offering to pay me. And the attendees like paid quite a bit of money to attend, you know. And then I saw another friend of mine who I know does not do writing workshops for free because I had asked, you know, if they would pay me. And they said, no, we don't pay any of our instructors. So I reached out to him and he was like, yeah, they're paying me this much. Okay. See, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And that, see, and, and that's great that you were able to do that, you know, because that sucks too. It sucks when people are like, you know, people expect authors to do things for free because it means exposure. But, you know, exposure is also a thing that kills hikers in the woods. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to pay anyone's rent. It's not going to, you know, put food in my daughter's stomach. I, and I tend to run a, a little loosey goosey with it. Like, you know, I, I, I'm not too keen on asking for money to talk to kids. Like I love talking to kids. I think that's a really valuable thing. I think kids who are starting out, you know, especially around high school age, you know, it could be a very vulnerable, sensitive subject. Like if they want to get into the arts and it's like, like, no, like that's something I want to support no matter what. But yeah, like if you're charging someone like 500 bucks to come to your event Mm -hmm. and then it's like, oh no, we don't have a budget. It's like, well, what are you paying for that? Mm -hmm. Like how much is the executive director getting? Maybe split up some of that money and, and pay the people who are appearing for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think if it's a free resource for writers, then I don't have that expectation usually of getting paid. But if it's something that people are paying to hear me speak, I expect to see some of that money. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things where it's like, you know, you just got to kind of take a look at it. And yeah, because again, like if it's a free thing, if it's a charity thing, like, cool, awesome. You know, I know people who are like, no, pay me or nothing. And it's like, eh, you know, I mean, if that's how you want to live your life, like, please do. Yeah. David Baldacci came to my library for free. So <laughs> yeah, he's so nice. Also, libraries are awesome. We got to support libraries. Yeah. You kind of already did this in the last question, but in case you have anything more to share, can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons you learned on your journey to publication? Oh, there's been so many good ones. Um, 
I think the best lesson I, I learned, this was uh, from Amy Hempel. She is probably the greatest short story writer who has ever lived. She is a lovely woman. I scared the living daylights out of her once at one of her signings because like, she's an older lady. She's, she's, she's a very petite lady and I'm a big, dumb, giant goon. <laughs> and I go running up to her with like all of her books. I'm like, will you please sign these for me? And like freaking out. But I ended up interviewing her uh, for a website and she teaches in the MFA program at Bennington. She's been a teacher for a very long time. And she said the biggest mistake that young writers make is wanting to publish more than wanting to write well. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really, really, really wise because, uh, you know, I think that's the thing that makes people sign with bad presses or vanity presses or accept representation from less than savory agents or, you know, self-publish when maybe self-publishing wasn't the correct path for a project, you know, because it's this idea of like, I just want to be done. And you're kind of like sacrificing certain things because, you know, there, there's a domino effect here. Like, you know, if you put out a book with like a really small press and they don't have any reach, they don't have any, you know, ability to get your book out to bookstores and you sell like a hundred copies. Well, God forbid those hundred copies are logged in book scan because then the next publisher, say say you're in front of a bigger publisher next time, they're gonna look at your book scan numbers and be like, This guy only sold a hundred books. Like this doesn't look good. You know, and that's not the that's not gonna be the be all end all of the conversation, but it's an important metric. And so there can be a domino effect there of like, you can kind of cut your leg off before the race even starts. Mm -hmm. I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. Who are some of the people and organizations who helped you along the way? Oh, God. Like, I could sit here for the next few hours and do this. Um, <laughs> I, I would say certainly uh, Craig Clevenger, uh, who wrote The Contortionist Handbook and Dermaphoria, who, you know, I reached out to when I was first starting out and gave me some really great guidance and advice. Todd Robinson, who wrote uh, The Hard Bounce, who is one of my closest friends, but we met at his release party and, you know, he really, like, he ended up publishing a few of my stories and we became close. And he's always really been there in my corner. Chantelle Osman, who is the uh, the editor of Agora Books, she's another great friend who is like she just gets me and like gets my career. And every time I kind of like feel like a little wonky about something, I can sit down with her and she'll be like, "No, you need to do this, this, and this." And she is right one hundred percent of the time. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I will. I'm going to stick to those three for right now, only because if I if I keep going, I will literally yeah. sit here for the next hour. Because uh, again, like that's the beautiful thing about King into like a really strong community of writers. It's like you end up with more friends than enemies. Mm-hmm. Before you go, Rob, can you tell us about the Paradox Hotel, which comes out next week? So this is actually a book my agent told me not to write. <laughs> Which, in fairness, in fairness, when I first pitched it to him, I did a very bad job. Uh, I did a terrible job explaining what the book was about. But you know, I, I stuck to my guns and stamped my feet and cried, and and he <laughs> eventually relented. But the idea is that we, uh, you know, we invent time travel, and it turns into this thing for the super rich, where like rich people just like want to go treat the past like a tourism industry, and. As the book opens, uh, the government is on the verge of privatizing it. It's set in the Paradox Hotel, title of the book, which is where they're holding this sort of auction for the site. And the house detective, uh, January Cole, finds a dead body, but only she can see it. Uh, So she suddenly kind of has to solve a murder that she's not sure has happened yet or has happened at all. And 
she's sort of in a declining mental state because of time travel radiation. So there's a lot of questions about what is happening and what's not. You know, it's it's got robots and dinosaurs because I'm going <laughs> to write a time travel book. I'm going to I'm going to have as much fun as I can. Uh, but it's also about you know grief and loss and and how you know the hardest thing we have to do is face ourselves. Yeah, I really, really love this one. You know, it's funny too. It got optioned for TV, uh, and the guy who wrote the pilot just did such a brilliant job. And for as much as I was proud of the world building in this, like he really like spun it out and made it even bigger. So this this has just been the the most fun I've ever had in a book sandbox. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Rob's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about him and his books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.